Well, happy Father's Day, dads. Thank you. Uh, the message today is going to be out of the Anchored Reading series, and, um, and we're going to be in Deuteronomy, and it's chapter 22. So if you have a Bible, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 22. If you don't, these ladies are walking down with these Bibles. Go ahead and grab one. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that one because um, everybody needs a Bible. It's the only book in the world where you don't read it, it reads you. And the more you read it, the wiser you get. And by the way, it's all true. Oh, one more thing. Um, they're passing out New King James versions of the Bible. It comes from the Masoretic text. So is the King James version. But um, a lot of folks like the Alexandrian text, which is New American Standard, New International Version, the best translation of the Bible, without exception, the best translation of the Bible is the one that you're reading. <laughs> Read your Bible. Amen? Um, now, it's not going to seem like a Father's Day message at the beginning, but trust me, it is. And just to set the stage for you, Deuteronomy, for those of you just joining us, some of you have already heard, but... Moses is approaching 120 years of age. He's about to pass away. He's been prohibited from entering into the promised land because he struck the rock not once but twice when he was told to speak to the rock. We've covered that. And the rest of the nation of Israel had to wander what was normally an 11-day trip took 40 years because they weren't allowed to come to the threshold of the promised land um, for 40 years because they had to wait for that generation to die because they disobeyed God. This next generation is at the threshold of the promised land getting ready to enter. Moses won't be able to join them. But as a father instructing children, um, as a dad, I won't be able to be in the expanse of my children's future, but I can speak to them and prepare them for that future. And that's what children are. They're the only other weapon we're given. The Bible says we have the sword of Scripture. And then the Bible says... Um, Children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full. Quiver holds arrows. And the, the straighter the arrow, the further it goes. And you shoot them into a future you'll never be a part of, but your children will. And so we raise them in the love and the admonition of the Lord that they're, when they're old, they won't depart thereof. And so Moses is, as a loving father to the children of Israel, he is telling them, look, my generation blew it. And these are all the things that we didn't do. And he's taking the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the law, to tell them what they need to do in order to enter the promised land and be fruitful. And now he's going through all kinds of different laws and commandments of God. And, and chapter 22, if you haven't been doing the Anchored Reading Series, it's going through the Bible in two years, uh, you should be. There isn't any reason why you're, you, sh you shouldn't be doing it. You should be because it really helps and it puts us all on the same page. You can find it online. But today, in chapter 22, um, Moses is giving some instructions to the children, and it's a good one. And then finally, before we stand, one last thing is this entire sermon was inspired by my favorite sitcom, or not sitcom, television show, The Andy Griffith Show. Yeah, and my my favorite episode of the Andy Griffith show that every time I see this, I get like choked up and I'm sappy. And my favorite movie is it's a wonderful life. And I, you know, yeah, the, 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 the same, yeah. About as many people clapped in first service. Yeah. You younger folks, if you haven't seen it, it's a remarkable movie. Check it out. So, um, we're going to get some instruction from a good dad not only the Lord, but um, the one he's entrusted over the nation of Israel, Moses. And so let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm not going to read all of chapter 22. I'm just picking the first four verses. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, 
Then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it, and then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and so you shall do with his garment, and with any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost and you have found. You shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. Now we're going to cover more of 22, but I just want to begin with those verses. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture, this instruction from you to the children of Israel spoken through the mouth of Moses. And Lord, is as important as it was to the children of Israel, it's equally important to us today. As a nation struggling, Lord, it's because we have wandered from your commands. And so God, sometimes they're difficult. Instruction is difficult. And as parents, we have to do the hard things. But you are a good father. And Lord, your commands are not burdensome. They give us freedom. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would minister to all who are present, especially the dads, that they would understand the best way to be a father is to honor their heavenly father by loving his word and teaching his children that word. And so, Lord, we commit this entire time to you, Holy Spirit. Please lead us into all truth. Bless us, we ask, according to your riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a seat if you would. I'll get to that video later in the message. But Moses begins by instructing the children of Israel like a dad would instruct his children. And here you see that if somebody loses something and you find it, it's not losers, keeper, or finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Um, and then I've also heard that possession is nine-tenths of the law. I, I don't know what that means. I've never seen it. Uh, that's not how God sees it. If you find something and you know who owns it, you give it back to them. If you find something and you don't know who owns it, take care of it until they're found and then give it back to them. And if your neighbor's ox stumbles and, you know, you you realize your neighbor is struggling, go over and help him. Help him. The Bible says, he who knows the good to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. That's in James. And so there's a couple of comments in relation to those four verses. You shall uh, not see and hide yourself. God here condemned the sin of doing nothing. To see your brother in need and to do nothing is to do evil. When one has the opportunity to do good, you must not hide yourself. And, and that's the idea. We help one another. And by the way, doing the right thing is going to come at a cost in a world that doesn't honor the right thing. But that doesn't mean we don't do the right thing. You know, to, to do the right thing and, and to stand in defense. I, I always find it remarkable that you have videos that go viral of people being beaten and the person is filming it and they're not doing anything. And neither of those are bystanders. But then we also find in our culture today in certain cities that if you do stand in defense of those that are being assaulted, you're arrested by the DA because they're Soros funded. And they let the criminals go and they, they punish the citizen who is protecting his neighbor or their property. I mean, we're in an interesting season, but that... Listen, there may be a consequence for doing the right thing. But you're not in charge of the outcome. You're in charge of the obedience. It's always good to do the right thing. And that is what Moses is instructing. And that's what we instruct our children to do. We we teach them to do the right thing, to have courage. You've always heard me say, and if you haven't, you're very new. (laughs) That when you teach your children the difference between morality and character. Morality's not doing what's wrong and character's doing what's right. I think it was Edmund Burke who said, all that's necessary for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. The difference between morality and character, I I, I love this illustration, I got it from Bob McEwen. Your child comes home from school and says, mommy, daddy, all the kids in the school called Susie fat. 
but I didn't. And you say to that child, that's the moral thing to do. It's, but where's your character? And they say, what do you mean? You say, why didn't you tell the other children to stop it? Well, they all would have laughed at me. I would have been the only one. It doesn't matter, child. You honor God, even in a world that doesn't. That's character. Character is doing what's right. And as parents, that's a hard lesson to teach. It says, until your brother seeks it, then you shall restore it to him. Simply put, when, someone is, when something is lost, a finder cannot claim it as theirs without taking all due diligence to restore it to the owner. If the owner seeks the missing object, it must be restored to him. Now, I, I grew up in a home where we didn't read the Bible and we didn't pray. And, and I, I never went to church with my mom and dad. They were faithfully married over 50 years and they were good parents, but uh, I had no exposure to the Lord. But what's fascinating is I don't know that my mother ever read Deuteronomy 22. But another television series that I loved was called Baba Black Sheep. <laughs> There's eight of you now. Yeah. It, uh, it was about Pappy Boynton, a Navy pilot at Fort Corsair in World War II in the war in the Pacific. And their squadron had a mascot dog called Meatball that was a white pit bull. And I was nine, ten maybe, and I wanted a white pit bull. And I was the youngest of the children by a number of years. I was my mom's baby. So I usually got what I wanted. <laughs> I thought that would be funnier. <laughs> and and I, I just, I was relentless in wanting a white pit bull. Well, one day, my mom comes home with a white pit bull. And I'm like, what? what? Just for you. We, we found it wandering on the streets in La Jolla. I'm like, wow. And, and it was kind of a little puppy. It wasn't fully a puppy. It had grown a little bit, but you could tell it had a little puppy personality. And I named it, it was a female. I didn't name it Meatball. I named it Daisy. I don't know why. And, and Daisy was an amazing dog, smart as can be. I trained it. I'd throw fetch with it. It started to grow. Daisy got muscles in places where most of us don't have places. She was just ripped. And, and she was getting bigger than a, a pit bull. And, and long legs and just, I'm like, wow, this dog had these funky teeth in the back that were like prehistoric. <laughs> and, and one day I came home from school and my mom said, sweetie, I've been putting an ad in the paper in La Jolla about a lost dog that was found and I've been looking in the newspaper and I, I found this, and it says, um, help, lost dog, white pit bull, La Jolla. And of course they added, needs medication, you know. <laughs> I'd had the dog for months and then wasn't sick. And, and I said, it's my dog. And my mom said, no, sweetie, we have to call them. I go, we found it. She goes, and we've been taking care of their dog. It's their dog. And it was a hard lesson as a child that loved Daisy, that my mom knew that the owner needed to be restored their possession. And so she called, and I was hoping it wasn't the dog. And I came home from school that day, and Daisy was gone. My mom said, I'm sorry, sweetie, it was their dog. She said, they left you an envelope to say thank you for taking such good care of her. Now, this is 1974. I opened the envelope, there were five $100 bills. I was 10. And that's where a quarter could buy two scoops of ice cream at 31 flavors. I'm like, I can eat that forever. You know? And I, I said, why did they leave so much money? And she said, um, well, it wasn't a pit bull. And at the time, it was a very rare breed. I don't know if it is today, but she said it was a dojo from Argentina, and they're bred to kill bulls. And I'm like, that explains the teeth. 
And my dad was um, gone a lot in Vietnam, and I, I was getting in a lot of trouble. I was, I was stealing all the hood ornaments off the Cadillacs in town. <laughs> I'm not proud of that. And if you lost your hood ornament, I, I lived nowhere near you when that happened. It wasn't yours. And, and, and I was, uh, the neighbors next door, their kids were wild and I was doing stuff I shouldn't at that age. I think it was fourth grade. I was doing terrible in school. I just missed my dad. Well, a neighbor, John Probasco, saw me periodically as one of the hoodlums in the neighborhood. And he said, what's your name? I told him my name. He says, oh, you're Captain Mc or Commander McCoy's son. I said, yes, sir. He says, your dad's in Vietnam? I said, yes, sir. He said, um, what are you doing this summer? You got a job? I said, I'm 10. <laughs> he said, um, you ever, you ever sailed a boat before? I said, I've never been sailing. He goes, would you like to learn how to sail? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, come here. Now that was back then when you weren't scared to death of every neighbor. <laughs> and I, I went and he showed me this just rotted boat that was sitting on two sawhorses. It was a sabot, which is, it looks like a Dutch shoe. It's the smallest single person sailboat. And, and he said, um, I'll teach you how to sail on that. And I go, well, is it going to float? <laughs> he goes, no, we're going to repair it and restore it. And you show up here every day at noon and we're going to do work on it. And I'm going to teach you how to restore it. And then I'll teach you how to sail. It's like Mr. Miyagi, karate kid. <laughs> and I showed up and we started with sanding and he was meticulous. That's not how you sand. You're going too, yeah, you got to gentle, you know. Each coat of paint required something else, and then the varnish and sand. It was just endless. But I learned a lot. And he told me what each of the parts were when we were putting them back on the boat. And he goes, now we got to get it in the water, but you got to have a dock for it. And he goes, um, I go, what about the bay? And he goes, I said, there's a lot of places there you can put it. He said, well, the Coronado Yacht Club would be the best, but it's going to cost you money. And he said, and if you want the boat, I'll sell it to you. So I agreed to both, and I ended up buying the boat and getting a junior membership at the Yacht Club, and he taught me how to sail, and that was my 500 bucks. Yeah, well, yeah. So I'm limited on time, so I got to get... So I, I learned how to sail. I, I became pretty proficient, and I wanted to go up to a laser. And by that time, I'd had it for about two years, and I was kind of tired of it. So... Um, I just stopped sailing because I'd started swimming competitively and there was no time. And I needed to sell the boat and it was Olympic year and Robbie Haynes had just won uh, the sailing championship, got the gold medal for America. And I came to realize that my boat was the very first boat Robbie Haynes ever owned. And I had restored it with Mr. Probasco. I sold that thing for a couple thousand dollars. And with that, I bought a, when I well, was older, I just put it in the bank and then put some more money with it as I was working. And with that, I ended up buying a 1970 Mach 1 Mustang 351 Cleveland engine. <laughs> yeah. It was my first car. Sold that for probably eight times what I paid for it, maybe 10. And today it'd be worth <laughs> unbelievable amount of money. It had very low miles. It was a widow whose husband had died. And, and that was my first car. <laughs> I was impressive at school. <laughs> but that all became possible because my mother followed a verse she had never read. And, and I think for all of us, God's word really applies to our children. And I've learned to teach my children the same lesson. And then the very next verse, Moses, Moses gets more intense as he's instructing his children. And this one's fascinating, if you read it this week. Verse five. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination. I underline that because I'm gonna define that word. 
For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. You don't, you don't, you don't, men don't put on women's clothing and women don't put on men's clothing. It's an abomination to the Lord. Now in this day and age, you're like, well, I don't, I just, I don't, why would God, I don't, we were talking about Riley Gaines. I've met her, interviewed her, delightful young lady. There she is standing next to Leah Thomas. He didn't transition to a female, he's a male. And he's, he's wearing a woman's swimsuit. And if you, in the University of Pennsylvania, and would put that swimsuit on in the women's locker room and did the same at the NC2A championships. Now, Riley tied Leah to the 100th of a second. But they gave the trophy to Leah and she had to stand to the side. You know, she described how long it takes to put one of those suits on because they're racing suits. And I was a competitive swimmer. Riley and I had a lot in common. I mean, you shave the hair off your arms and legs and shave your head because it's a hundredth of a second. And, and you see the monster that she tied. And, and these suits, to put them on, take a half hour because there is a certain fabric that is repellent of water and and all the women in Pennsylvania, the, the ones who were at University of Pennsylvania that complained were sent to re-education that they'd lose their scholarship if they complained about Leah. And Title IX had started when I was in college at Fresno State, where you'd take uh, men's football, men's basketball, which were money generators, and then they required you to use that for female sports so that women would have equal participation in the sports. You had to have equal number of teams. And and, and I remember that was a battle, but it was kind of cool. They had a softball team that ended up making, you know, some revenue. And yeah, yeah. So, so Title IX was to protect women's sports. Well, now Title IX has become allowing men to dominate women's sports. Leah said this. She said, it is not sexual harassment under the new Title IX for Leah Thomas, a male with male parts, to be undressing and exposing himself in our locker room. See, that's an abomination to God. Now, some people have taken the verse, the command uh, to be a proof text against women wearing pants, and some Christian groups command that women wear only dresses, yet this is not a command against women wearing a garment that in some ways might be common between men and women, it is a command against dressing in a manner which deliberately blurs the lines between the sexes. We're image bearers. Let us make man in our image. He made them, male and female. The distinction, you don't blur the lines. That's what God is instructing through Moses and that's what parents are to share with their children. So you go, well, what about, what about the Scots who wear kilts? Those are dresses now, <laughs> right? They're dresses for war. Uh, this, this verse doesn't say nothing about kilts. Stop your yammering. Yeah. I wrote down here, nor shall a man put on women's garments. This does not prohibit a man from wearing a kilt. <laughs> Yet it clearly prohibits a man dressing like a woman as is all too common and all too accepted in our modern culture. I'm done now with the accent. <laughs> all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. This command to observe the distinction between the sexes is so important. Those who fail to observe it are called an abomination to the Lord. I underlined it, I'm gonna explain that word, be patient with me. This was not only because cross-dressing was a feature of pagan idolatrous worship in the ancient world, but also because of the terrible cultural price that is paid when it is pretended that there is no difference between men and women. Really, where are the feminists? Women's sports being dominated by men. And you're pretending you can change a biological sex by puberty blockers? When, when, when did everyone become so stupid? 
It, it's not transitioning, it's mutilation. We don't even allow chemical castration for serial pedophiles in prison because it's inhumane. But you will, you will lose the right to parent your child in some states, including California now, trying that if you do not assist in their transition or stand in opposition to it, the children will become a ward of the state. But you stand for the right thing to do. Now, God calls it an abomination. I want you to see that word. Abomination, it's a noun. Abhorrence, disgust, cause of abhorrence or disgust. It just sickens God. This isn't what I intended. This is, this is nauseating. Now I want to look at another word, contrast. Intransitive verb. To set in opposition in order to show or emphasize differences. To show differences when compared. Now the reason why I brought up the word contrast is to show the difference between abomination, which is found in Deuteronomy 22.5, and what we find in Deuteronomy 22.22. Look at this. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. And they're to be stoned by the citizens. You commit adultery, everyone comes and you get killed with stoning. And that happens once you're like, I ain't doing that. That's too much of a price to pay. And some of you are going, wow, that's hard. You know what? Why would God say that? He creates the estate of marriage and the strength of the family in Ephesians 5 and 6. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's the umbrella God. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. It's the only commandment that comes with that promise. So God is, is the strength, and then the father, and the mother, then the kids. And that's the order God designed. You say, well, then that makes women subservient. No, women are equal. But every leader has a follower, and every follower has a leader. Everyone has different roles. Doesn't mean because you're the president of the company or you're the president of the United States, you're better than I am. We're equal in the eyes of God. We have roles to play. And what I do is just as significant as what the president, well, um, <laughs> the idea is the man may be the head, but the woman is the neck. And, and God, God wants the family to be strengthened because it's the building block of a healthy society. And that relationship is to be one that children can look to and trust because mom and dad aren't going to do anything to each other that would affect the warmth and security of their family. Nothing selfish. And God wants to emphasize how important that is for these children because they're impressionable. And it becomes problematic. Now, look at the contrast. Capital punishment, they shall be put to death. Capital punishment is a noun. Penalty of death for the commission of a crime, the practice or legal sanction of allowing the imposition of the penalty of death for people convicted of committing certain crimes. And you compare that and contrast that with abomination. Abhorrence, disgust, a cause of abhorrence or disgust. So in 22, you get killed. In verse 5, for cross-dressing, it's an abomination. You get to live. Why so severe this and not as severe that? Because this is an ancillary effect of that. The children, when you separate, don't know who to identify with in the most critical time of their puberty. And they look for examples to follow. Manhood is frightening for young boys. It's mysterious. Both of my boys, because I knew what I went through, and if it wasn't for a scoutmaster and guys like John Probasco, I would have been rudderless. And I remember my boys, when they turned 13, I took them on a walkabout. I said, today you become a man. I took them to the cemetery, and I said, every great journey begins with the end in mind. And a good name is like a precious fragrance, better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. You, you're given a name, and if, whether that's a fragrance or a stench, depends on how you live it, and you're responsible for that from this day forward. You front load. 
And the more you do in education as a man, you're a provider and a protector, and you do the right things for a future family. And the more things you do right, the better equipped you are and the more opportunity you have to provide for them. And I said that because I, had, I was a terrible student and I hadn't, I hadn't read a book cover to cover to my senior year in college. It was the Bible. And, and I, I, I know that God wants us to instruct our children and to pour into their lives. And, and if, if we fail as parents, it's catastrophic. This is an ancillary effect of this. This is why God is so severe about this. A lot of you are saying, well, I don't, I don't know that I completely agree with that. It doesn't matter. God's two great rules of the universe. There's a God. You're not him. And, and nations, thank you, nations, nations that have followed the Lord flourish. And those who don't, well, struggle. We didn't just wake up one day and be in this predicament we're in. This is a decline of marriage in America. Reagan in 1979 allowed no-fault divorce in California, which set the precedent for the rest of the country. And in 1970 became law and decimated marriage across the country. Nearly one million American children suffer the divorce of their parents every year. Half of the children born this year to parents who are married will see their parents divorce before they turn 18. Mounting evidence in social science journals demonstrates the devastating physical, emotional, and financial effect that divorce is having on these children, and it will last well into adulthood and affect future generations. Among these broad and damaging effects are the following. Children whose parents have divorced are increasingly the victims of abuse. They exhibit more health, behavioral, emotional problems, and are involved more frequently in drug abuse and have a higher rate of suicide. Children of divorced parents perform more poorly in reading, spelling, and math. They also are more likely to repeat a grade and to have a higher dropout rate and lower rates of college graduation. And families with children that were not poor before divorce see their income drop as much as 50%, and almost 50% of the parents with children that are going through a divorce move into poverty after the divorce. And then finally, religious worship, which has been linked to better health, longer marriages, and better family life, drops after the parents' divorce and I'll share this last part for those of you who are fiscal conservatives. Fiscal conservatives should realize that federal and state governments spend $150 billion per year to subsidize and sustain single parent families. By contrast, only $150 million is spent to strengthen marriage. Thus, for every $1,000 spent to deal with the effects of family disintegration, only $1 is spent to prevent the disintegration. Now listen, there's single parent families in here that have done very well with their children. 22 years of pastoring, Michelle and I have seen remarkable parenting by a single parent. But they will say, every single one of them will say, I would have liked to have had a spouse that I could count on. And, and it, it will work, but it is a lot of work. And that covering and that help, many hands make light work. One is hard, two is a little easier. I'm thinking about our legislators. It would be good if they passed a one-time tax credit to always married couples when their youngest children reach 18. Because you have stayed with them to adulthood and you have imparted to them and you've nurtured the next generation into adulthood. And it would help offset the current marriage penalty and the tax codes that we see. Now, this is so vital to a nation that Moses would say to them, you have to understand the contrast. This is an abomination, but that requires death. Don't make the mistakes because you're entering into a land that is going to be inundated with people who do the exact opposite. When our founders established this nation and looked for every form of government throughout history and came up with what they had established in a constitutional republic by inspiration of the Israelites, and much from Deuteronomy. One of the most forgotten founding fathers, his name is Dr. Benjamin Rush. He's perhaps forgotten because modern secular historians are allergic to his outspoken evangelical faith. His signature on the Declaration of Independence comes immediately before that of Benjamin Franklin. 
Former generations venerated him as peers with both Franklin and George Washington. He's an amazing man. Here's a list of some of his accomplishments. Rush was the one who encouraged Thomas Paine to write Common Sense, which fueled the American Revolution. Um, Paine wanted to call his work Plain Truth, but Rush suggested the title Common Sense and served as the editor to the work. If you don't know what Common Sense is, it was the, the time in America's War of Independence against Britain in December of 1776 when we were down to a handful, a few thousand troops remaining. A third of the Continental Army was dying of dysentery. A third didn't have boots, wrapped their feet in burlap sacks, and then they mustered enough to battle on December 25th, 24th of 1776 in Trenton and overcame the Hessians and turned the tide of the war because conscriptions would be up January 1st and there would be no America. And, and I've been listening to David McCullough's uh, book, 1776. If you haven't read it, I've read it and I'm listening to it now. The despair of Washington at this time was so overwhelming. And the thing that inspired him and moved him was what Thomas Paine and Benjamin Rush together wrote, Common Sense. He had it reprinted and given to all the soldiers who could muster, and they read it. And I haven't memorized it completely, but it says, these are the times that try men's souls, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot, will in this season shrink from the duty of their country, but those who defend it now deserve the love and respect of all men and women. He says, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, but this is what we hold true. That the greater the struggle, the more glorious the victory. And to cherish so celestial an article is freedom. And he would write these words and inspire the continental forces that America would flourish. Benjamin Rush was a devout evangelical Christian. Thomas Paine was an atheist at worst, an agnostic at best. Had nothing, he, he wanted nothing from religion. He hated tyrants, that's why he participated. And the founders ultimately had to get him out of prison in France after America was established, and he died penniless. But Benjamin Rush worked with him on what today is one of the finest works in America. Rush was the personal physician to many of the founding fathers and is known as the father of American medicine. He's also called the father of public schools under the Constitution. His voice was among the very first to strongly champion the cause of abolition of slavery. He hated the slave trade and devoted his life to opposing it. He crusaded for the reform of prisons and championed the cause of the mentally ill. He established Bible societies and actively promoted the case of higher Christian education. He also became a peacemaker, and this is one of the most precious stories in our nation's history that most don't know. He became the peacemaker in a long-running feud between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Rush had a vivid dream that the two old warriors would reconcile before their deaths. Awakening from his dream, he felt compelled to make peace between his two old friends, and he succeeded. And both were reconciled. And both died on the same day within hours of each other on the 50th birthday of America. July 4th, they both died, hours from each other. In 1790, he also helped organize the First Day Society, which started the Sunday School Movement in the United States, teaching children God's word. He was also one of the founders of the Bible Society Movement in America, which sought to make sure every citizen in every home had access to God's word where you find wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And also, finally, Dr. Rush helped start five colleges and universities, including the first college for women. He was an early supporter of women's rights. And here's what he wrote. Let the children who were sent to those schools be taught to read and write. Above all, let them, let both sexes be carefully instructed on the principles and obligations of the Christian religion. This is the most essential part of education. This will make them dutiful children, teachable scholars, and afterwards good apprentices, good husbands, good wives, honest mechanics, industrious farmers, peaceable sailors, and in everything that relates to this country, good citizens. I was really endeared to him during our struggle with COVID when being brought before the judge and the fear that was being leveled on us every day. 
when I realized what he had done during the yellow fever plague in Philadelphia. During the yellow fever pandemic in Philadelphia in 1793, Rush insisted on staying in the city while others were fleeing. At the time, Philadelphia was the nation's capital and President and Mrs. Washington left town along with many others fleeing the disease, but many could not flee and nearly one-tenth of the city's population died. The plague lasted for 100 days. At that time, Philadelphia was the largest city in the country with a population of 50,000. At least 20,000 people fled as panic spread through the streets. Of the 30,000 that remained, at least 5,000 perished. And Dr. Rush wrote to his medical students that he was entrusted to, and this is how he inspired them. He said, as for myself, I am determined to remain in Philadelphia. I may fall a victim to the epidemic, and so may you, gentlemen. But I prefer, since I am placed here by divine providence, to fall in performing my duty. If such must be the consequence of staying upon the ground, then to secure my life by fleeing from the post of duty allotted in the providence of God, I will remain if I remain alone. And of course, he survived the yellow fever crisis, but later, years later, he succumbed to typhus and died at the age of 67. This is a man who was not afraid of the consequences of truth and doing the right thing and understanding the significance of educating children in the ways of the Lord. He was a founder of the nation. He reconciled two warring friends. He was the father of education in America. He understood these things. He started the Sunday school movement to teach children what God intends for them. You raise a child in the wisdom of God, you raise them. When they grow old, they won't depart thereof. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And by the way, things are caught, not taught. Children observe you and how you honor God. But then when we come to this idea of capital punishment for adultery versus abomination, one is an ancillary effect of the other, I was thinking of not only Matthew 5, 32, where Jesus is speaking on divorce, but also Mark chapter 10, which is another account of the same. Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he began by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The idea of the foundation of a Christian life is being poor in spirit, realizing without you, God, I have nothing. Now, that's getting down, you just remove all the loose gravel and you get down to bedrock, and then you can pour your foundation, it won't crack. But you have to understand in God's kingdom, look, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this room who hasn't been affected by divorce or abortion or adultery in some capacity, if we combine all three of those. Each of us, as, as children, we've probably seen our parents struggle and go through that, or as spouses, some of you have experienced these things. And, and some of you have divorced and remarried. And you're looking going, well, wait a minute, where, where does this all fit? Am I supposed to be stoned and killed? You see, prior to this, God said, uncleanness, though you can divorce your wife. And it was a liberal interpretation where you could say to your wife, you overcooked the food, I'm done with you. <laughs> and so Jesus, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning you recognize you have sin. And then the next one is, Blessed are those who mourn. You mourn your sinful condition, and the scripture says you'll be comforted because God cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. And, and if, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all. And the word in the Greek for all is all unrighteousness. And he cast as far as east is from the west. You, you leave the North Pole, you're traveling south. You hit the South Pole, you're traveling north. You go east, you never hit west. And, and that's, that's this idea of you'll be comforted. And then the third of, of the Beatitudes, I won't go through all of them, I just want the third one. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I, I just was re-emphasized my understanding of meekness when I went to Wyoming for this pastor's retreat and I, I went horseback riding, it was beautiful. And all the other pastors got to have quarter horses, but they gave me a draft horse. 
Her name was Thora. And they gave me Thora because they thought I'd kill the other horses. I'm too fat, you know. And I got on Thora and I'm thinking, man, this, this beast could crush me. And she was unbelievable. You just lightly move that way. Oh, and then, and then you, 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 whoa, and stop. And if you pull the reins a little too much, she starts backing up. Like, wow. And then she'd go to nibble. I go, no, Thora. And she'd go, oh, oh sorry, boss. You know, it's like, hey, just, just lightly. She was so good. And that's what meekness is. Meekness is that bit in a horse's mouth. It's strength under control. Governed by God. A life governed by God. He pulls to the right, you go to the right. He pulls to the left, you go to the left. What, is he, what he says you do. And instead of being an uncontrollable wild beast, you're governed by God. And your strength under control. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness inherits the earth. It's a gift from God. He lays all this out so that he just says, there's there, therefore, in Romans 8, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look, I get it. Everyone in the room, including myself, has failed. All right. I'm not going to start the stoning if you won't. The idea is this. Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery. That's like a stoning there. That means every guy's dead. And if they're saying no, they're lying. So stone them for lying. There wouldn't be anyone living. What Jesus is emphasizing, what Jesus is emphasizing in Mark chapter 10 and in, and in Matthew 5 when he says this, in the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. Can you just divorce on a whim? Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And you're like, well, I've been divorced and remarried. Am I committing adultery? You did. But now it's a marriage. And, and there are some faiths that say, no, you got to leave whatever spouse you're with and go back to the original one. My Catholic brothers and sisters, their, their faith demands that. Unless you get an annulment, which I'm not even sure. And interestingly enough, the Lord gives permission for divorce for two reasons, adultery and abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse. But you know, my mother-in-law, and I've said this before, and, and she is, she's, for Michelle and I, she's a hero, and so is, so is my father-in-law. But she's been three times married and twice divorced. And my father-in-law has been twice married and once divorced. But to each other, they've been married over 50 years. Now, I, I, I don't think she can go back to her second husband because he's dead. And the first husband's remarried and they'd have to really work through things. But when Michelle's biological father was abusive to my mother-in-law, and as a little girl, she and her sister hid in the closet and watched this man. And Tom Coletti came in as he was about to unleash on Dee. And he looked at that man. And Tom, even in his 80s, scares me. Tom looked at that man and he says, you need to go now. And I just think for that man, if I'd heard that from Tom, especially when he was younger, it'd be like, yeah, don't, don't bother washing the underwear, just burn it. It's like, I don't think you get it, but I, inappropriate, and I'm sorry I No, I'm not. I thought it was very fitting. But, but Tom came in, and, and, and Michelle, as a little girl, just, are, are you going to be my dad? My daddy. And one time I asked Michelle, I said, do you ever want to meet your biological father? She said, I have a dad. And, and Tom's always been that. And came in on a white horse. And I, 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 I know the Lord doesn't desire anything different than what Tom and Dee have. His grace is sufficient. But why is he so emphatic? Because divorce was so rampant. And, and the ancillary effect of divorce is the abomination you see. We don't honor marriage. 
Malachi writes, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God wants us to work it out. Couples who pray together, the divorce rate's one in 5,000. When I say pray together, don't hold hands again. Lord, do something with this ridiculous man. That's not praying. That's arguing with your eyes closed. <laughs> praying together as you hold each other's hands and you pray a blessing on your spouse and they pray the same and you pray for your kids and anywhere that you don't understand what to do, together you're asking for wisdom. And the Bible says if a man doesn't listen to his wife, God hinders his prayers. Yeah, it, it's not like, woman, submit. Any man who says that is a weak man or very confused. She's not submitting because it's demanded. That is, that is voluntary submission commanded by God, and she's chosen to do it for you. And there's not a man in the room worthy of a woman's submission. There isn't. But like I've learned with bad bosses, when the Bible says honor those in positions of authority, they've been appointed. I've had some rotten bosses, brutal. But I learned two things when I submitted to their authority. One, they're flawed, just like me, and I learned from their mistakes what not to do. And in the process, I also learned of their strengths, and each one left me with a blessing. And the idea is you endeavor to keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, and you work through it, and you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual praises, and be patient with one another. It, it, it's to a man's benefit to overlook an offense. You have to choose to be offended. You know, Phyllis Diller used to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Stay up and fight. That's, that's not biblical. Don't let the sun go down on your anger means stay up and work it out. Now, there'll be fighting when you're dealing with it, but she, what she meant was you got to get through it. There's no perfect marriage. And for the ladies who are struggling with the idea of submission, let me help you with something. You're not submitting to the man any more than I was submitting to those brutal bosses. You're submitting to God, who's worthy of our submission, who's asking you to submit to that bad boss or that difficult husband. Now, you can submit to him. And the Bible says to men in the Scripture, in the fear of God, submitting to one another. You don't walk around as the patriarch going, if I want your opinion, woman, I'll give it to you. You're not going to be married long. God's going to hinder your prayers. He's basically saying, you don't listen to your wife, talk to the hand, because the face isn't listening. And I'll say this last thing, because I'm running out of time, but I'm so enjoying myself. In 33 years of marriage, anytime I haven't sought my wife's counsel, or I've ignored it has led to a tragic consequence. She is the wisest, most discerning human being I have ever met. Period. Exclamation. But I wasn't always a listener. I was that guy I've just been talking about. You can leave now <laughs> if you hate me. She stayed with me. Thank you, everybody. All right, let's move on. The whole point of it is this. The world needs faithful moms and dads. That's what God wants. That's what he wants. Now, I'm almost finished. There's, there, when we went from 22 verse 5 to abomination with cross-dressing, he totally ch changes gears, Moses does, in verses six and seven. I'll conclude with this. It's almost hilarious. It's just like, abomination. And then he does this one. And he, this is a father instructing kids. It's like, this is really sweet. He says, if a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days. This is a commandment that allows you to live longer. 
and it deals with a bird's nest. Almost done. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, God simply and plainly commanded kindness to animals. Even a bird's nest was to be given special consideration and care. Some Jewish commentators say that this is the smallest or the least of all commandments, yet even it has a promise of blessing for the obedient attached to it that may be well with you and may prolong your days. You shall surely let the mother go. Puritan commentator Matthew Poole wrote this. He said, partly for the bird's sake, which suffered enough by the loss of its young, for God would not have cruelty exercised towards the brute creatures, and partly for men's sake, to restrain the greediness and covetousness that they should not monopolize all to themselves, but might leave the hopes of a future seed for others. You know, it's like the goose that laid the golden egg. Well, if we cut it open, we can get them all right now, and they just kill the goose, and there's no eggs inside. You know, you, you, you don't, you, you go, you take the eggs, you don't take the hen. And, and this, is, this is the idea. And then finally, these last two parts, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. If Israel would obey this commandment, they would find blessing and long life, both as individuals and as a nation. What possible connection can there be between showing kindness to the bird's nests and eggs and a little baby bird and national survival? Two things. First, because obedience to the smallest of God's commands brings blessing. It puts us in a properly submissive relationship to God and that this always brings blessings to us. And then second, because kindness and gentleness in the small things often, but not always, speaks to our ability to be kind and gentle in weightier matters. If someone is cruel to animals, not only is that sin in itself, but they are also much more likely to be cruel to people. If Israel allowed such cruelty to flourish, it would harm the nation. You see, folks, all this is taught by parents. And my favorite program, which I promised you, Andy Griffith's show, he was a single dad. I don't remember what happened to Opie's mom. I just know Aunt B lived there. <laughs> but he, uh, he was like a father in my dad's absence. And I'll never forget watching this episode, and it still chokes me up to this day. And this, this clip of the episode inspired today's message. And also to just emphasize how important dads are. Because the kids need to hear from you and what they need to hear is God's wisdom. And you can't give from an empty well, dads. Read your Bible. I read Proverbs the first time I found it. Never read a book cover to cover. And, and for most of my Christian life, I've tried to read a chapter of Proverbs every day. Because it, it, when I read it, it just said it gives wisdom. I said, I want that. Check out the episode. Let's have it. You know what I'm talking about. Hand it over. that bird, didn't you? Didn't you? You remember me telling you to be careful with this thing? I'm sorry, Paul. That won't bring that bird back to life. Being sorry is not the magic word that makes everything right again. You gonna give me a whipping? I'm not going to give you a whip. You hear that? That's those young birds chirping for their mama that's never coming back. Now you just listen to that for a while.
I did all the right things. I hope you can fly away. Please fly away. Please. You made it, Paul. He's okay. That was not. You got two to go now. Go on, Lincoln. Do like your brother. Fly. Please fly. Go on, Lincoln. Follow him. Hurry. They're okay, Paul. They all flew off okay. Guess I did a good job, huh, Paul? You sure did, son. Cade sure looks awful empty, don't it, Paul? Yes, son. It sure does. But don't the trees seem nice and full? happy i get choked up with that thing but the trees sound nice and full i mean that one's just like wow uh, you just see the importance of dads and parents and god is instructing us because he loves us a lot of you got gypped you don't get to pick the parents you get in this world but you can pick the kind of parent you're going to be and and you've made mistakes okay that's behind you forget what's behind strive for what is ahead today's the first day of the rest of your life let's do it right I don't know what it's like to be raised in a home without the Bible being read or going to church or praying. And fitting that she's sitting here, but I told Natasha once when she was getting ready to leave, you were 18 or 19. She was, she was tired of, you know, the Christian thing. She was gonna go find life without God. And she was determined and she got a job down in Oxnard and I walked her out to the car and everyone in the house is crying and she's leaving and I said, sweetie, people spend their life trying to get out of Oxnard, you're moving into it. Now, now the, folks, the, the, folks that live, the folks that live in Oxnard, you're in the best part. But I'm talking about where she was is the thing. No, but I did say that and I, I don't mean to be mean to the folks from Oxnard. It's gotten so much better. No, it has. But at the time, you know, she just said, Dad, I gotta do this. And I said, sweetie, and I'll never get that. I said, sweetie, you're the only child I get and I'm, I'm qualified to raise. Because we adopted her when she was 12 and she went through all kinds of hell. She's tough. And I just said to her, those kids in the house, they're aliens to me. I don't know what it's like to be raised in a home where you go to church and the Bible's read and, and you pray and you have a mom and dad who love God. I don't, I don't know that world, but I get you. And I get that you're experiential. And I said, you only owe me one thing when you leave. And she was like, pretending she wasn't listening, but she was listening. And she goes, what? And I said, if you find anything better than Jesus out there, you gotta come tell me. And, and she, she came back and she tried to live life apart from God, realized that it's a fruitless venture. And she came home and she said, I want to know the Lord like you and mom know God. And now watching as her life as, you know, she graduated from Liberty. She's, she's doing, I'm just, I couldn't be prouder of, of her. Now, you don't get to have favorites. <laughs> but I will say this about Natasha. God has used her more in my life than the other four children to show me how much he loves me and what a patient father he was with me. And I am grateful to have such a precious daughter as Natasha. Now the other four kids, they're special to me for this. I now know as they've all gone into adulthood, how powerful the observing of God's commands are as their lives are simply remarkable. All my children walk with the Lord. And I have two son-in-laws and a daughter-in-law that walk with the Lord. And I'm about to have another daughter-in-law that walks with the Lord. And it, it's, yeah, I'm a dad who's, who's unworthy because I didn't know any of this. 
I didn't know what to do. I was a brute when Michelle married me. We were both new to the Lord. I could have never been the father I am without having been blessed with the wife God gave me. And I, I, I just leave you with this. It hasn't been a rosy road for 33 years in a lot of ways, but there's not a single part of it I'd wanna change. And the two of us together can testify how faithful God is. And when you observe his commands, life is really good. And so I just say to the dads, you know what to do. Dads, would you stand with me for a second? We don't need the worship team. We're gonna, I'm gone too long. Would you stand, dads? All right. You have been given a title that God himself carries, Father. Everything you need to know about how to be a father is found in God's word. And if you know it, you can teach it. Remember that. Children are counting on you. May God bless you. Lord, I thank you for these men who are standing. Lord, I ask that you would pour your spirit upon them and give them wisdom beyond their years. Lord, you give them the wisdom to instruct their children in the way that they should go, that they would be tender, patient, long-suffering, firm, kind. They would never discipline in anger. Lord, I pray that you would help them. And if they lack wisdom according to you, James, that they would just simply need to ask you and you'll give it to them. Lord, bless these men. Thank you for them. Even the men uh, across the globe who are watching now, Lord, we're asking the same blessing for them. They're part of this fellowship. And so, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Would the rest of you stand, please? Everybody stand. Everybody stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. And I ask that God would abundantly bless your families and heal your wounds. Resentment and unforgiveness are poison to a family. Let it go. Forgive one another. Reconcile. Let's heal these families. Let's be faithful to one another. May God bless you richly. And I guarantee you he will. And now it's Father's Day and we have tube steaks waiting for you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.